2: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A big show today. We're going to be talking about The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. A conversation with Brian C. Mararescu. He's written this brilliant new book. We will get to that, but First, Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us, former co chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, certainly a member of that caucus in good standing right now. He's also on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees. Pocan.House.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House. Congressman, welcome back. I'm guessing that you heard at least a, a little slice of my take on Terry McAuliffe, neoliberal, Bill Clinton reincarnated candidacy versus a uh, a Youngkin populist, yes, a right-wing, but nonetheless a Youngkin populist candidacy. And, uh, and by the way, people for people who say, oh, well, it was all about Youngkin's racism, I would point out that Winsome Sears, who won the lieutenant governor's race, is black and a conservative and a populist. And Attorney General-elect uh, Jason Meyers, who won the uh, AG's position, is Hispanic American, again, a conservative you know, a, a right wing populist. I'm curious your thoughts on Virginia's election.
0: Well, thanks, Tom, for having me. Also, I believe, and I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but the lobbying firm that Youngkin is from, they couldn't use that against him because McCulloch was an investor in the Carlisle Group. Uh, so, you know, all the right. more reason if you can't actually differentiate a candidate. Boy, that sure makes things difficult. You know, I, I, in a way, I think it wasn't a great surprise, right? We saw that the off year. We know uh, there are some trends you're working against, including in Virginia's history on the governor's race. Uh, Just the opposite on New Jersey. You know, uh, the governor is the first Democrat governor to be reelected since 1977. So, you know, I guess you can make other arguments on that. But uh, I just think, you know, it's an election day. uh, Local issues dominate these state races far more than anything else. But I, I think you're right. The conservative populist message that they're using right now is working. And, uh, you know, hence uh, why progressives, I think, when we talk about the issues that people care about, much of what are in the Build Back Better agenda, I I do think there's real promise for us next year when we get these two bills done, which will be very soon.
2: Well, don't you think if Terry McAuliffe had run on a a campaign on saying, you know, we're going to get a good Medicare for all program passed in the state of Virginia. We're going to get free college in the state of Virginia. We're going to turn Virginia into a showpiece for America about what America could become, how we can you know compete on a on a level playing field with Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, all of Europe, <laughs> you know, by simply doing these simple and straightforward things that he probably would have won easily.
0: Yeah, well, I, yeah. Show people what you can actually do for them. What government can actually work as opposed to look I'm coming back to do the job again, right? Uh, There's a lot more of a messaging, which is again, not, not to just bring it back to this, but the Build Back Better agenda with what's in there, what people will actually benefit from, Tom, when we get this done, which is going to again be very, very soon. You know, the whole Beltway, when's it going to get voted on is not what people ask me in the district. They want to know how they're going to benefit. Well, they're going to benefit from a tax break for 40 million American families via the child tax credit, which by the way, lift half the children in this country out of poverty. Reduce costs via uh, all sorts of things from pre-k to senior care to other provisions. That child care provision alone, Tom, if you make less than $250,000 of the median income in your your state, you're going to pay no more than 7% of your income from child care. A true game changer, especially for women who want to be able to get into the workforce and save the average family thousands of dollars a year. On top of getting that tax break and other cost savings, prescription drugs, and other issues. Um, also, it creates uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of jobs. I haven't seen the final number on this bill. It was 3 million jobs, I believe, with uh, the bill that was at 3.5 billion, many of them tackling climate change. We have $550 um, billion going toward tackling climate change, and it's paid for by the wealthy and corporations, including, I think, something that it gets, got far too little attention, which is this minimum 15% tax for corporations that right now are so you know figure out ways through accounting not to pay anything this is a bill that we can absolutely run on people will see a real populist benefit and we need the president once we pass it to go around the country and talk about it because all the beltway press want to talk about is what day we're voting on it and what's the bottom you know what's the top line figure what of uh, what's going to be in there when, as we said, it's already paid for, that means there's zero cost to the average person.
2: Yeah, amen. Normally, I just, uh, you know, when you first come on the program here, Congressman Pocan, I just, you know, toss it to you and say, what's on your mind? Uh, Is there anything you wanted to discuss or mention or or highlight before we start picking up phone calls? The board is filling up. Honestly,
0: this is on my mind. You know, this is what we're trying to get done. There was a lot of talk last week when a number of us in the Progressive Caucus, dozens of us, clearly, didn't want to just go ahead with the infrastructure bill because we knew that would take away our leverage just what's going to be interesting tom and i hope you have a chance to talk about this in the future when you see the the manager's amendment all that got added since we did that you'll see what a difference we made don't forget the first time we said we wouldn't just vote for infrastructure we went from zero dollars to almost two trillion uh in this bill and now we have the particulars and you're going to see all the new stuff that got added again this is a strong bill, and it's strong because of what progressives did and, and the public wanting more, which we helped to deliver. And uh, you know, honestly, that's what I'm spending most of my time on these days. So I'm, I'm very glad to talk about that.
2: Well, I, I hope we can get Mansion and Cinema on board. This is uh, this is grim stuff. Okay, let's yeah, let, I, I think, go ahead,
0: Tom. You know, I really think they're largely there because of where we negotiated to this point. Mm-hmm. I just think for some people, and I won't say names, the TV camera is like what water and air is to you and I, yeah. um, and they'll do anything to continue to be in the limelight. But at the end of the day, they'll do the right thing, because who wants to be the person who just stopped your constituents from saving five or $10,000 a year on child care? Well, let's
2: let, let them be care. in the limelight by being the heroes, you know, the, the votes who pushed it over the top. I mean, it's... Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. So let's pick up phone calls here. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan.
1: Hi, Tom. Thank you, uh, Congressman. I just heard that the Family Leave Act has now been put back in the uh, bill. Is that correct? And are we talking 12 paid leave, 12 uh, weeks? First, is that correct?
0: So, Pam, you're mostly correct. Yes, it's back in because Nancy Pelosi is said this is a priority for the American people. We're going to do it. However, it's at the point where it was negotiated into four weeks. So not the full provision the president originally wanted. And we're not exactly sure the mechanics on it yet because the language hasn't been released. But it is going to be the four weeks that things had gotten to a few weeks back before uh, Joe Manchin said uh, no. Still, getting our foot in the door on this is important. As we've said, uh, let's have more benefits, even if it's for shorter amounts of time, because when the public sees how good these benefits are, we'll be able to extend them in the future. There you go.
2: Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you are on the air with Congress in Pocan.
3: Uh, Tom, thanks so for taking my call. Mr. Pocan, good day to you. Just uh, quick point. Uh, you know, I asked my neighbor who voted Republican, why did she vote for Yunkin? And she said uh, she liked the TV ad where he was running where he said he's going to eliminate um, grocery tax. This, 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 I'm just making that point. There. reducing grocery, Eliminating grocery tax. So um, I don't think McAuliffe was a right candidate. But, you know, it's over now. But my question to you moving forward, is that I just want to make the point that the Progressive Caucus have power in Congress. We have repower in the Democratic Party. And my question to you, Mr. Polkan, what's the latest on the January 6th investigation? Is it in the beginning, the middle, or the end? And is this investigation going to finish before the 22 election? Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, thanks for that update, I appreciate you saying uh, what your neighbor mentioned. I, I think those are far more valuable than a bunch of talking heads. Uh, who are paid to uh, quite honestly represent corporate interests on mainstream media, giving us uh their analysis of what 's going on um it's really at the beginning uh because you know we're at the point of putting these subpoenas out about to get people in to talk about it. you know we had to wait about six months because Republicans kind of played the game they might play along, and then of course you know Donald Trump told them definitively no and and of course they didn't so uh you're going to have a lot of information coming out on January sixth and it 's really just starting that's uh
2: good news. Morris in Long Beach, California, are on the air with Congressman Pocan.
1: Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Congressman, I got an idea for you. Uh, you, know, you know how these guys, these rock and roll bands, they go on tour. They go on tour. We got a lot of big venues in this country. I believe that the progressives need to go on tour selling the Build Back Better plan. Now, Mr. Biden, he doesn't have to speak. All he has to do is just be there, let his presence be there. And the speakers could be local. You could even go to some place where the whole thing is done in Spanish. you got to get out there touring like the Beatles did or the Rolling Stones and go to these big venues, invite people to come on in and find out about the Build Back Better plan. And I think that. That would really help you out a lot. And don't feel bad about what happened uh, with the election last night in Virginia, because if you had the man himself, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, running for the Democrats, you all always going to lose that one. But that's not a big problem. So I'm just suggesting just go ahead with the, having the progressives go on tour like a rock band, letting everybody know what the benefits are to their local community. You think that's a good idea? And thanks for your time, Tom. Yes.
0: Yeah, Morris, I, I completely agree when you have local folks who are more trusted. That's great for them to explain what's in it. But the only thing I'd say is I think the president needs to go around, too, because he gets more press, a thousand times more press than the average member of Congress, period. So he needs to use his bully pulpit to really explain what's in here. It's been this obsession by the mainstream media here in Washington to talk about what day we're voting on this bill and what the top line number is. Neither of which I've been asked by any real people in my district. What real people wanna know is what's in it for them as, you just, as, as, as Omar just mentioned. You know, people wanna know what's in it for them, the government's doing. And there's a lot. Just that childcare provision alone is a game changer for many families. So uh, I agree. Let's get local folks to talk about it where people know them, but let's also get the president to go and travel. And I, I've said this to him personally. I think he's got that power and that bully pulpit. But once people know what's in here, this is going to be the most any Congress has done probably since FDR for the American people, and we really need to get that out there. And that's
2: what Trump did. You know, he he traveled around the country doing his rallies, and we dismissed it as ego, but it was brilliant populist politics.
0: Absolutely, and this is... You know, what I told the president is, you know, he's like the house at Halloween with the full size candy bars, uh, <laughs> not the black licorice and, and circuit peanuts. So he should use that.
2: <laughs> right. He's not the guy passing out little mini Dole salads.
0: <laughs>
2: <Exactly>. Thank you. Congressman <laughs> Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. Mike, in Buena Park, California, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan.
1: Hello, and thank you both for putting on this particular forum that allows us to call in. I really appreciate it, and I'm a first time caller. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, for years we have uh, heard of or talked about, uh, maybe even decades, the, um, you know, stopping or beginning to stop the uh, oil industry subsidies for, you know, a corporation that makes billions a year. I don't see how they could get any subsidies. What mechanism is used? To roll back the billions of dollars in the in in these oil uh, industry subsidies, and is there anything it, like in the uh, Build uh, Back Better uh, uh, plan to uh, to do something like that?
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Sure. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for being a first-time caller. Uh, so uh, there's nothing specifically around those provisions, which many of us think it's ridiculous that we're providing any incentives to industries as profitable uh, as oil and gas is. But uh, nonetheless, uh, what's really strong here are a couple things. One, there's a lot of money uh, put into electric vehicles and putting charging stations around the, uh, the country um, to really change uh, how we do transportation in this country. There's also $550 billion, with a B, billion with ab 1000000000 dollars addressing climate change in the Build Back Better bill. And we've had uh, an analyst look at the two bills together, and they will have significant reductions in our carbon output in this country uh, when we pass these two bills. So the good news is I really think we really are on the cusp of getting this completely done. Uh, Don't get lost on people who like to talk about process. This is the story before the calm, and then once we have the calm, that bill uh, is what we're gonna have, and we're gonna finally be able to have uh, some ways to address climate change. Is it as much as the Green New Deal? No. Uh, is it significant? Yeah.
2: Elmo is in Teaneck, New, New Jersey. New You're uh, listening on Sirius XM. You're on the you air did? with Congress in Pocan. Elmo? Yeah, uh, hi. How are you? You are on the air with Congress in Pocan, Elmo.
1: Oh, great. So, you know, I'm from New Jersey, and I'm a very progressive person, and pretty much I should not have given my real name because so, people know me, but I'm involved with politics here in the state of New Jersey. But my question is this. We talk about taxation and stuff. All of us fly airlines all the time. We pay tax to get on the plane. We tax for the parking. How are these billionaires buying tickets for $30 million to fly to space for 30 seconds, and they don't pay any tax on it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Elmo, I could talk for a long time on this. I mean, this is the most interesting Big, whatever contest between these rich folks, right? That they all have to do this a few seconds in space. And uh, just to show the extremeness that we have between uh, the wealth discrepancy in this country. I, you know, I think this is helping us to move towards a wealth tax, a billionaire's tax. We almost had it as a funding source had it not been for a senator. Um, but that's real progress. You know, this, think about two years ago, this wasn't really even talked about it is now, and now we're able to move it forward. So I agree. It's completely ridiculous that this is how they choose to spend their money, and this is the the contest they have to show how rich they are. But at the end of the day, um, this is helping us, I think, to make people realize that we have to do something to address inequality, and uh, that may turn out to be the real silver lining.
2: Tyrone in Harlem, New York. You're on the air with Congressman Pocamp.
1: Thanks for taking my call. Mr. And we have to figure out our message plan because you would think that, being that they won Virginia, the Republicans that won Virginia, you would think that Donald Trump was reelected. The way that they <laughs> message to their constituents, you, you think that we are living on another planet. We have to figure out a way to get past letting the Republicans dictate the narrative take you the message because that's how the guy won in in Virginia because he made everybody believe that critical race theory and hide your children because the renegades are coming. So we have to figure out a way because the media is just interested in the frenzy. A lot of them don't care about the the outcome. They more care about who's fighting who. This is what keeps their money coming in. We have to figure out a way to get our messages out the way that they are definitely getting hands out.
0: Yeah, Tyrone, I don't disagree with you. In fact, I think, Tom, that's why he's talking about populism, right? The message we need to get out to folks much better. You know, the problem is the mainstream media, you know, they created Donald Trump in many ways, I truly believe, by the free coverage they gave him every day during those primaries. And now they're back to covering him again, now that he's just in the complainer-in-chief status, because that's all he's doing. But they're, they're taking it like children with gummy bears, you know, they, they just love this stuff. And they're not our friends. And we need to know that. But we do do need to get out there and talk about what we're actually doing. And when we pass this Build Back Better agenda, there are serious things in here that are going to help the American people. And we need to be talking about that all the time. We need to have folks talking about it in our local communities, as well as the president going around the country, explaining what we just did. Because Republicans can never do that. We need to get a more populist progressive message out there and there's a lot that is populist and progressive in the build back better agenda so you're right we have an opportunity we better do it right
2: john in cashmere washington john you're on the earth congress in pocquine
0: good morning gentlemen
1: i know right now the focus uh, for the democrats is the build back better bill but i wonder if there's any effort to look backwards at the abuses of the trump presidency uh, for instance the blatant corruption that was exhibited in his constant visiting of his own properties, golf courses, hotels, etc. over the period of time that he was in office, or issues like using tweets to um, make policy, fire people, etc. Thanks, guys. Thanks,
2: John.
0: Yeah, thank you, John. So I believe oversight, government reform, and judiciary are probably the main committees that are still doing that type of work. I serve on appropriations. That's completely different than what the purpose of my main committee is, but there have been efforts and I've heard about them. Just to your point though, John, I think it's worth mentioning. I heard this, Tom, and and I can't personally confirm it, but I've heard it from a reliable source that in the contractual language that Donald Trump on his new social media platform he's creating, there's two provisions that he has in there about transfer of ownership or whatever. One is about if he runs for office again. The other is if he gets put in jail for a felony. And so Donald Trump knows he's done things that are wrong, right? To put that language in there. We should also understand it enough and continue to pursue it.
2: Yeah, there you go. Congressman, as we go forward, what can everybody who's watching or listening right now do, you know, like support Build Back Better? and, and, And what do you expect to be coming up in the next week or two?
0: Yeah, so right now, I'm not sure if the vote will be this week or not. And I guess, again, it, it, what day has never been the biggest concern to me. It's getting it right, getting the right stuff in the bill. But I think when we have the bill done, I mean, there are going to be a lot of benefits that we're going to have to let people know about. What we found is when we passed the rescue plan, ARPA, all the money that we put out there that gave people uh, you know, money immediately in their pockets as we're coming out of COVID, gave the child tax credit for this period of COVID time and all the other things we did, very few people know about what we did because we did not do a good job in getting that message out. So helping us get that message out about the benefits that happened because of Democrats in charge, I think is really important. Things that never happened under Donald Trump.
2: Yeah. Amen. Congressman Mark Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it.
2: Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at repmarkpokan. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com/hartman for two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50 percent off your first week. That's 50 percent off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com/hartman.
0: OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: What for me, anyway, I, and I, I suspect for most people, is an absolutely fascinating topic. The core and key origins to many of the world's religions, in this case specifically Christianity. Brian C. Murorescu has a new book out. It's called The Immortality Key The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Graham Hancock, in fact, wrote the foreword, if you're familiar with his work. And uh, it's just amazing. On the line with us is Brian Mirorescu, the author of this book. We're going to do a, a conversation, of the Great Minds deep dive into this. Brian, uh, welcome to the program, and thank you for writing this absolutely brilliant book. Let's start out with, first of all, the premise of the book. What is the immortality key?
3: Good to be here, Tom. Good to see you again. Well, I've been searching for that key for about 13 years now. It's what one of the, the great religious scholars of the 20th century, Houston Smith, once referred to as the best kept secret in history, which is essentially two questions for me. Number one, did the ancient Greeks use drugs to find God, as controversial as that might be? And even more scurrilous, did the earliest Christians inherit some of that same technology? Are psychedelics at the root of Western civilization? Lots of questions. I went on the hunt for the science.
2: Yeah, and I could get where, you know, it might be that psychedelics would do that. I don't recommend that people take psychedelics, and I would certainly never recommend that the teenagers take psychedelics, but when I was 15 years old, I was living in the house right off campus at MSU where they published an underground newspaper called The Paper, and Timothy Leary had sent this guy, uh, Keith was his name, out. He had sent 12 people out, disciples, to to preach the word. Keith brought a bunch of of, uh, sugar cube LSD with him, and I took some. And that got me started on uh, really a spiritual quest that's lasted my whole entire life. I mean, I would say it changed my life for the better in a a very significant way. led me to transcendental meditation, led me into just a whole world of things. It makes perfect sense that that acid experience, as it were, would, would be a beginning point for religions. Tell us about the temple of, is it Eleusis?
3: Yes, exactly, Eleusis. And I should just start by saying that I myself am a psychedelic virgin, which doesn't make me very hip in certain circles. So I really did try and go down this rabbit hole as objectively as possible. And one of the first stops that takes you along the way is Eleusis, which for those who don't know, was sort of the epicenter of the ancient Mediterranean spiritual universe. It was this temple dedicated to Demeter and Persephone, the Greek goddesses of the grain, agriculture, and the underworld. And it called everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius for hundreds and hundreds of years on the promise of immortality. So you would do this pilgrimage trail from Athens up to Eleusis, about 13 miles there in ancient Greece, and you would drink this magical potion called the kukion, and for some reason it would reveal to you the secrets uh, secrets of existence. And it was said that those who went to Eleusis would never die, that they somehow discovered something about the meaning of life.
2: And I'm telling you that they do. So how interpenetrated with Greek, this was during a time of the Greek gods, right? I mean, this was not Mm -hmm. when, how interpenetrated by hallucinogens or ethnogens, or I think I'm mispronouncing that word, was the Greek religion at that time?
3: So, I mean, we don't really know in terms of the hard evidence. That's what drew me into this mystery is that, you know, the, none of these theories are mine, by the way. The whole psychedelic hypothesis goes back to at least the 1960s with John Marco Allegro and others claiming that, you know, psychedelic mushrooms were somehow involved in the birth of Christianity. The the book that I really follow, it came from the late 70s. It was co-authored by uh, Gordon Wasson Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD and Carl Ruck, who is still actually a professor at Boston University. And they claimed that something like ergot, which is this, this natural fungus that grows on cereal crops um, and from which LSD can be synthesized, by the way, they claimed that that had somehow made its way into this magical potion and was responsible for unleashing these, these life-changing visions that the initiates would report at Eleusis. But for the longest time, there was no you know, hard archaeobotanical data to support that. So that's what I went on the hunt for and wound up finding.
2: And tell us about that.
3: So, I went to the, the site at Aleusis and I asked the archaeologist there if, if I could test her chalices, which, which is a weird question. You know, there are chemists and archaeologists who get together to do what's called organic residue analysis, ORA. And even if there are these chalices, cups, containers that are thousands of years old in some cases, you can scrape the the inner surface and and sometimes um, walk away with a pretty good idea of what may have been um, the ingredients in that beverage, right? Um, and so we've discovered wine that goes back, oh geez, uh, 3,700 years. There's there's evidence for beer going back potentially 12 or 13,000 years. So um, it's really it's really gained traction over the past few years. And when I brought that to the attention of the archaeologist in in Greece, her response was that you know most of the vessels that had been excavated for the past century at Eleusis had all been treated, un- unfortunately, like cleansed for conservation purposes. So I had to go elsewhere. I just started digging through these journals, these old academic journals, and came across this fantastic discovery from what today is Spain. And there, about 2,200 years ago, there was this Greek chapel at this, at this Greek colony, uh, which seems to be something like a mini Eleusis. So there were rites seemingly dedicated to the same goddesses in Greece, Demeter, Persephone, and there was something like a potion. And inside one of these tiny chalices that was unearthed on site there, only about a couple inches high, the archaeologists found the actual remains of some kind of primitive beer that seems to have been spiked with ergot, like the very same ergot that was hypothesized back in the 1970s. So I'm not sure we can call this an LSD beer, but it's awfully tantalizing.
2: Yeah, it would be awful close to it. So this was apparently key to greek culture or at least part of the greek religions i mean are are there writings that might support this was this a secret
3: it was all secret which is worth noting so we're piecing together clues which is what classicists largely do only about one percent of the total literary output from antiquity has survived so you know we're we're really digging into the record and trying to find as many clues as possible. I mean, Plato and others would leave scattered lines without revealing what actually happened at Eleusis. Plato, for example, talked about this blessed sight and vision that he witnessed, and he called Eleusis the holiest of mysteries. Cicero, the great Roman statesman, said that Eleusis was the most exceptional and divine thing. So like when you think about Greek religion, we think about all these silly stories of gods and goddesses interfering in human affairs, but I'll sometimes say that Eleusis strikes me as the real religion of the ancient Greeks. You know, those skeptical people who just wouldn't fall for fairy tales, they went to Eleusis to experience something apparently tremendously profound.
2: And this is part of indigenous and aboriginal cultures all over the world, you know, most people are familiar with ayahuasca down in South America, but I spent some time in Australia years ago with an Australian, a native Australian aboriginal shaman, and he could identify the, here's a psychedelic plant right here, you know, this is what we used to use, that kind of stuff. I mean, this is part of human history, is it not, not just Mm -hmm. Greek history?
3: Oh, this, this, this far precedes the Greeks. I mean, so I focus on the Greeks and the Romans and the Christians just to put them into context. I mean, ju- just to put them on this human timeline. But, you know, I've been having these fascinating conversations with a colleague of mine in South Africa, uh, a paleoanthropologist by the name of Lee Berger. Um, and he studies archaic hominids, right, going back hundreds of thousands, um, sometimes millions of years and, you know, I, I kind of start my book at the agricultural revolution. So again, 12, 13,000 years ago. But all we're talking about is, is humans and archaic hominids getting in touch with their environment. I mean, how could you survive without some kind of sophisticated understanding about not just where to find your food, but how to, how to find your medicine, and occasionally how to get high? It, I mean, it would happen.
2: Brian, have you read any of uh, Terence McKenna's work
3: I've read a fair amount.
2: Yes. Yeah, me too. McKenna uh, lays out a hypothesis that what we call human consciousness right now might have evolved out of what you might call prehuman or, you know, advanced hominid consciousness specifically as a consequence of humans experimenting with is it ethnogens?
3: Yeah, entheogens.
2: Yes. Entheogens. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, experimenting with psychedelic substances.
3: Well, what do you think of that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's one of those wild theories. There's some great YouTubing you can do around the stoned ape theory. I feel like it, it might get more currency in academic circles if we called it something like the pharmaphilic hominid hypothesis. How about that? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> so oh, I, I have been talking about that with this paleoanthropologist colleague of mine that I mentioned, Lee Berger, and I love how Paul Stamets talks about this. It's not necessarily that the ingestion of mushrooms, you know, catalyzed some spark of imagination a couple million years ago. Um, it very well could have been the the ritual ingestion of some kinds of fungus, maybe millions of times over millions of years, that did somehow affect the cultural rise of what would become Homo sapiens. I I know it's a very big idea, but I do think through things like the archaeochemistry that we've been discussing, especially especially a dental calculus analysis, I do think there's some hard data out there in the field that we're going to dig up in the coming years.
2: Yeah, I know Paul, and he's he, he's very passionate about his mushrooms. I'll tell you. Is there any evidence that any other animals? I know, I know. We you know we know that birds will go for fermented fruit, and elephants will go for fermented bananas, and they all love getting drunk. But what about psychedelic substances? Do, do they affect other animals in a similar way? And is there any evidence that other species are using these?
3: Oh yeah, there, there's a great book um, I always consult by Giorgio Samorini. I think in English, it's animals and psychedelics, It's pretty self-explanatory. And it's chapters and chapters of some of the examples that you mentioned, but also insects. There's this apparent love of baboons for mind-altering substances. We know that chimpanzees routinely would use something like two to 300 medicinal plants in their diet. So as far as we can tell, it's all across the animal kingdom.
2: Might that account for the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos? Or bonobos however you say that
3: <laughs> I'm not an evolutionary biologist but I do talk about this with some of the biologists I'm in touch with and it is awfully curious that that, that chimpanzees do have a fairly diverse botanical pharmacopoeia as part of their toolkit. It may help to explain in some way that pharmacophilic hominid hypothesis that, that we're talking about. And maybe, just maybe, this is something that humans would have inherited from their closest mammalian ancestor.
2: Right, well, if other species are using psychedelics uh, in addition to alcohol, then it just makes sense that it would be almost essentially part of the, uh, the process, the evolutionary process. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable hypothesis. talking with Brian C. Murorescu. The uh, book is The Immortality Key. Brian, we've been, up to this point, we've been talking about, you know, 3,000-year-old Greek civilizations and religions and things, and there's, there is this uh, scholarly work on how modern Christianity was not the Jesus Church. Jesus, uh, the disciples of Jesus, basically, that lineage kind of died out and got replaced by the Pauline Church. Paul, who, arguably reinvented jesus as a greek god there was this huge greek influence on early christianity to what extent is that all real based on your scholarship and and to what extent might they have brought into christianity their own use of psychedelics
3: that's the big question which is essentially two questions like was there a carryover in general from the pagan world to the christian world that as far as i'm aware is very uncontroversial sometimes referred to as the pagan continuity hypothesis Back in the middle of the 20th century, nobody less than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was researching and writing about that. He has a famous paper you can find on the Internet called The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. (laughs) So exactly what what we've been talking about. Christianity was born into a Greek-speaking world that was very Hellenic in terms of its culture, its its ritual, its practices, and its religion. The New Testament, it's often worth reminding people, is written in ancient Greek, right? It's not written in King James English. So it would have been addressed to people who were steeped in these very Greek traditions, among them folks who had been to Eleusis, for example, which isn't that far from Corinth, one of the most famous early sites of Christianity, and not to speak of the rites of Dionysus, who in some senses kind of reads like a prefiguration of Jesus and the Christ story, this son of God born of a virgin who uses this magical elixir in his secret meetings. You know, so there's a way to read Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, that is not too far from his pagan predecessors. And there, there's a great book I reference in my book by Dennis McDonald, this scholar, called The Dionysian Gospel, talking about all these parallels between the Greek of John and the Greek of some of the pagan authors. It's possible John was trying to present Jesus as the sublimation of Dionysus, this magical God with very magical wine. Think of the whole water to wine scenario.
2: And Dionysus, I know nothing about Dionysus, forgive me. He was a Jesus-like figure? He changed water to wine?
3: He did, centuries before Jesus did. So when you read about the wedding at Cana, so this is my 12 years of Catholic school coming to Barrow. Mm -hmm. But when you read the second chapter of John, the famous transference of the water into wine, a Greek ear in the first century, I think would have easily made the connection to Dionysus. In the Greek district of Elis, for example, on the western Peloponnese, there was this old story that had been circulating for centuries about how on the Epiphany, again, the same day when we think this this miracle at Cana took place, by the way, but on the Epiphany in January, the priest of Dionysus would go to the Dionysian temple and leave these empty water basins um, overnight. They'd arrive the next morning suddenly full of wine. So that this whole notion of water to wine was not new with Jesus. And again, even more tantalizingly, the concept of consuming divine flesh and blood was not new to Jesus either. It was, I mean, classical scholars write openly about the fact that the blood of Dionysus was with something magical. And, and to, to consume that blood in the form of wine was to become one with the God, very, very similar to the promise in Christianity
2: and you think this wine was spiked?
3: Well, it was certainly spiked in the ancient Greek world. And so we have to think about about wine and what that meant to somebody 2,000 years ago. I mean, of course they had table wine like we did today, but... As you dig into the literature in ancient Greek, I think the language matters because wine, first of all, is described as a pharmakon, which is the Greek word for drug. It's where we get pharmaceutical. And, and their wine was routinely mixed with all kinds of plants and herbs, uh, potentially fungi, toxins. So you could use wine to kill somebody right? with a dash of hemlock. You could use it to heal somebody. Uh, with the right uh, plant concoction, and you could use it to elicit visions. Um, There's this old writer, Dioscorides, who I talk about in the book. He writes in the first century, at the exact same time that the New Testament is being penned. And he talks about adding all these ingredients to wine that you wouldn't think makes sense, like um, henbane and mandrake and something like black nightshade, which is very toxic but can be um, vision-provoking. And and Dioscorides specifically says that wine spiked with black nightshade produces not unpleasant visions. Yeah, that's that's belladonna and scopolamine
2: in nightshade. I mean, those are hallucinogens in large doses
3: very powerful substances yeah.
2: yeah they can be brutal hallucinations <laughs> but they are hallucinations <laughs> I'm familiar with those drugs okay we're talking with Brian C Murescu his book the immortality key the secret history of the religion with no name our conversations with great great minds I I almost said wine because I was thinking huh the sacrament okay in Christianity we drink wine let's talk about that. Brian Marasco his new book uh, in our conversations with great minds his new book uh, the immortality key the secret history of the religion with no name Brian Christianity is still uh, still drinking wine <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know uh, so. yeah so is there any link between the the you know the wine that people have at communion And the psychedelic wine that the Greeks who had such a heavy influence on early Christianity or the reinvention of early Christianity, is there a direct line between the two?
3: Well, as a Catholic, you know, when you look at that wine on the altar, that is no ordinary wine. I quote a figure in my book that something like 69% of American Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation. And for those who aren't aware that's that the bread and wine literally becomes the flesh and blood of Christ. So, that is no ordinary wine. And in the Our Father, we often say in English, give us this day our daily bread. That's a terrible translation from the Latin and the Greek, which I won't get into. You know, well, feel I don't know
2: free. How, I'm, I'm curious.
3: <laughs>
2: We've well, got plenty of time here.
3: <laughs> in Latin, that word for daily bread is super substantialem, which is super substantial. And in Greek, it's which is like hyper-essential. It's the exact opposite of daily. It's bread that's not ordinary. And so the wine was never meant to be ordinary. It is not ordinary. You are drinking blood. And I think that it's such a weird idea that we often forget the fact that the central tenet of the Eucharist, at least in Catholicism, is the consumption of actual blood, not as a metaphor, not as an analog, not as a symbol, but that there is the literal consumption of blood. It's exactly how the pagans thought about it. It's exactly how the followers of Dionysus thought about it when they would drink their wine, which it seems like we talked about in the last block was routinely spiked with all kinds of different ingredients. So I'll say this briefly about language. You can read the entire New Testament. You won't see a single reference to the word alcohol because there is no word for alcohol in ancient Greek. So, what does that say about the power of their drink? This is an age before distilled liquor, before it's, before spirits. So they were spiking the wine with something to give it this profile.
2: That's remarkable. Is there any evidence in old Christian or even uh, you know early Catholic writings that the wine was a little more than just wine?
3: Well, you you can read too much into this sometimes, but I'll I'll quote St. Ignatius of of Antioch. He was one of these church fathers. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians, much like Paul did. And in about the the beginning of the the second century AD, St. Ignatius refers to the Eucharist as the pharmakon Athanasias, the drug of immortality. Now, again, you could think that's just fancy wordplay, but I think Ignatius is playing on a tradition that goes back a thousand years to the time of Homer, where, again, wine is often referred to as a pharmacon, not as this innocuous beverage, but as this versatile vehicle to carry different kinds of drugs to induce different kinds of experiences, whether that was purely therapeutic or medicinal, or whether it was for recreational purposes, we know the Greeks really enjoyed their symposium, or just occasionally, just occasionally, something visionary, what we would call a sacrament to really induce this, this kind of um, sense of communion with your chosen wine god.
2: Well, and it makes sense that it would be wine because, you know, it has both water and alcohol in it. And some drugs are water soluble or tend more to be water soluble. Others are more alcohol soluble. So it would be kind of the ultimate all-in-one solvent if you wanted to convey some kind of psychedelic or medicinal or whatever substance into, into somebody's body. There's a considerable body of literature around how Christianity adopted psychedelic rituals of people from the far north, far northern Europe. The shaman of the Laplanders and, you know, of northern Norway and northern Sweden, uh, indigenous people who, who used a mushroom, you know, a red mushroom with white dots on it that the reindeer would eat and their livers would metabolize the toxins in this mushroom and but leave intact the psychedelic substance in it and then the the shamans would go around and gather up the yellow snow from the reindeer after they fed them these mushrooms and and turn that into a brew that they would drink and and then they would have visions because it contained dimethyltryptamine dmt and they would have visions of reindeer little reindeer flying through the sky and and you get this guy dressed up like a giant red mushroom with white dots all over That's santa claus is that and the yule log and i mean you know the 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 christmas tree at the the shor- shortest day of the year the priest would go up on the highest hill and light a tree on fire to reignite the sun and the next day the days would start getting longer and everybody would say he did it again how much of that i mean you know that that's all unique to one part of the world northern northern europe but there's a real psychedelic tradition there that seems to be connected to santa claus a what are your thoughts on that and b are there other examples of that kind of bleed through? This isn't from Greek mythology. This is from, you know, northern Scandinavian mythology or religion of bleed through of psychedelic traditions into Christianity. I, I get, you know, ayahuasca, for example, in South and Central America.
3: Right. Well, you, you know your Santa Claus myth very well, Tom. I'll say that. Siberian shamanism is often credited it's being a repository for all this lore around the amanita muscaria mushroom. In particular that that's that's the uh the famous red and white select mushroom from our fairy tales and our children's books and some of our disney movies there's something to that i'm not sure how much of it made its way into christianity i mentioned john marco allegro before he wrote uh, an inflammatory book called the sacred mushroom and the cross where he writes about exactly that by the way and how it was the amanita of all potential psychedelic candidates that was a stand-in for Jesus Christ, that, that actually Christ never existed as a historical figure, but the Gospels were drafted in this way to conceal this secret. And the big secret is that Jesus was just a mushroom. You can imagine how that was received in an academic circle. Yeah, not well, um, I would think. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I use John Marco Allegro as a bit of a cautionary tale for how best to approach this stuff. But, you know, the the root of your question is spot on, which is that pagan continuity hypothesis. That's what really draws me in. Doesn't necessarily have to be from the Greek or Roman world, although I think the Greeks had an enormous influence, like we talked about before, for the development of Christianity, not least of which because it gave its sacred language to Christianity, before Latin, that is. But, you know, even if you look at the, the notion of like funeral banquets, I, I spend a lot of the book focusing on these meals around the dead and how they could have been these visionary events for the living to interact with their ancestors. You see something like this funeral banquet that would become the mass, right? You see something like this funeral banquet in ancient Rome. They had this tradition called the refrigerium. And I spent many occasions spelunking under the streets of Rome looking at all these catacombs and trying to look for clues to what the Romans were really doing and how much of that made its way into early Christianity. The answer is quite a bit. There's quite a bit of overlap from this pagan, call it like a day of the dead ceremony. It would happen right under what, what is today St. Peter's Basilica. And the, the, there's a necropolis right there where these ve- very pagan sort of drinking parties would take place with the dead.
2: Wow. Bacchanalia, I think. You write that uh, around the 4th century AD was when the, the Temple of Eleusis, uh, correct my pronunciation, was destroyed, and that Gnosticism was emerging within Christianity at that same time. Excuse me, disappeared around that same time. Tell us what Gnosticism is and What's the significance of that?
3: Right, so I mean, back to the point of the Greeks, nothing more Greek than, than the Gnostics. I mean, the, the word itself is Greek. It comes from the Greek gnoe, which means to know. So these were the folks who claimed to know. They claimed they claimed identity with the divine in them, that spark of the divine, that, that to know oneself at the deepest level, this is how Elaine Pagels describes it, from Princeton University, that that to know oneself at the deepest level is simultaneously to know God. Well, that's a heresy, according to the, the Church Fathers. And there were different groups of Gnostics, largely in the second to fourth centuries, like you said, they disappear at the fourth century, along with all these other pagan traditions as the church is growing and expanding and becoming more bureaucratic and selecting which books go in the Bible and which don't and convening these councils under the aegis of the Roman emperors, by the way. So as Christianity becomes the state religion, these heresies begin to disappear. There there was no appetite for that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, again, these secret meetings and magical sacraments, I think they tended to die under the weight of their own secrecy. They just don't lend themselves well to organized religion.
2: Well, wasn't there also a large element of uh, you know, if you can take psychedelics and and see god all by yourself, you don't need a priest?
3: Well, that's that's a very romantic idea and maybe and this is certainly what the gnostics believed. It's unclear to whom was their allegiance, right? Was it to the bishops of Rome and and elsewhere, or was it to that divine in themselves? And today, I mean, that's the great tension between the mystics and the bureaucrats, right, or between clericalism and, um, you know, individual spontaneous fits of piety. There's always been that, that tension in the church throughout history. I think it's still there today.
2: Well isn't there a good piece of that in the in the evangelical movement? That you should have a personal relationship with Jesus. You don't need the Pope, you don't need the church, you don't even need me as your pastor, you just need to have this personal... Rela- isn't that just a variation on that?
3: That's exactly right. That That's where the Protestant Reformation came from in the first place. This is where evangelicalism came from, accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Why do you need the priest and the bureaucracy and all the rest of it? I mean, this is, I think this has been happening in Christianity for 2,000 years. I think it's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. We can't agree on, on the mystery of who this figure was and what it all means.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable stuff. <laughs> the, uh, so, what happened to the mystics, and how did the mystics, how did the Christian mystical tradition get uh, transformed? We'll get into that in just a moment. We're talking with Brian Mark. He is the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name.
3: Delve into the Shadows of the Mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery, starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall, uncovering secrets from his past he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
2: So Brian, is there any extent written record that would suggest or that would inform you as to how the mystical tradition in Christianity has evolved over the last 2,000 years, uh, particularly if it genuinely did start out as a psychedelic mis, you know, mystical tradition and, and then became basically a monastic mystical tradition or a, an, a more introspective one, or am I even mischaracterizing the, the entire landscape here?
3: No, I mean this is this is why I think the psychedelic conversation is is bound up with a conversation around mysticism, right? And I think that they live and breathe in in the same arena of our minds. And you mentioned your early experience with psychedelics. that this is this is how how some of the earliest scholars, like Houston Smith, who I mentioned, Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, they all they all look to psychedelics as catalyzers of mystical consciousness. Um, I think it was Alan Watts, even prophesied something like a popular outbreak of mysticism, if if psychedelics were to become popularized. Um, Aldous Huxley talked about a revolution. Well, that
2: happened so, in the '60s. I can tell you, I was there. <laughs> it actually, it absolutely happened. I mean, I, I you know, I, I ended up you know in, in mystical Christianity, you know, in this in the Coptic Church in, in Detroit um, after going mm-hmm. through transcendental meditation, and, and I knew a lot of people who started with psychedelics and ended up with mystical religions.
3: Um, and it, it doesn't—it it doesn't surprise me. Um, and it, if anything, you know, psychedelics, it, under the right set and setting, under the right circumstances, I, I think they, they, they are a back door or a side door into a genuine—a um, genuine spiritual adventure. Um, I sometimes call them something like the Google Maps for the Kingdom of Heaven. I mean, it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's all well and good to talk in abstract terms about doctrine and dogma and theology, but. At its root, mysticism is about experience. Um, The word, again, is Greek. And it was used for the initiates at Eleusis. The mustes was the person who would keep silent. It comes from the Greek muo, which means to keep your mouth shut. Um, so these were folks who were exposed to secrets. And it's, 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 no, it's no mistake that Christianity was born with secrets. Um, even in Mark, Mark 4.11, when Jesus is asked why he speaks in parables, you know, these, these weird stories about the mustard seed and the prodigal son, Jesus himself says that he's talking about musteria. And that word is defined by the Greek lexicon as a religious secret that is confided only to the initiated and not communicated by them to ordinary mortals. So, for me, there's no debate that Christianity is born with secrets. And, and I think the mystics have always been the people who kept those secrets alive and would become some of the monastic um, communities that you see today.
2: It's, uh, and do you think that there are monastic communities that are continuing a psychedelic tradition?
3: <laughs> so I was gonna, yeah, I should have said. So I, I wouldn't go that far, but in terms of in terms of contemplative silence and the notion of, of pilgrimage, um, and I studied with the Jesuits, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, the, the the mystics, I think, do keep alive a a, a sense of awareness um, and a love for non ordinary states of consciousness that you can describe as something like psychedelic. By the way, and, and I think they go hand in hand.
2: Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Back. We're talking with Brian Mirorescu, the author of The Immortality Key. And Brian, I years back in the 80s, I lived in Germany and got fascinated by the, uh, the whole religious subtext of the Nazi movement. Ended up in, um, in um, Austria, in Vienna. Uh, at the the museum looking at the Spear of Longinus, which Hitler, uh, the first thing he did when he took Austria was he marched in and and got this spear. It was supposed to be the spear that pierced the side of Christ because he thought that whoever held that spear could rule the world. Uh, And he was the last in a long line of uh, despots who had done that apparently. But along (laughs) with the spear was this whole German and Nazi mythology around the Holy Grail. Tell us about the Holy Grail.
3: Well, the whole, yeah, so I don't want to align myself with the Third Reich, but I, but I, share, I share that interest in, in the Holy Grail, as in Indiana Jones. Um, you know, so it's, it's alternatively the, the cup that was used uh, by Jesus at the Last Supper, um, or it was the, the cup that, that caught his blood as he was dying on the cross. So, so either way, the repository for some kind of magical potion. Now, I don't think we'll find something in, in, at the upper room in Jerusalem, um, to prove this one way or the other. But in some ways, my book, and it continues to be the case, I'm, I'm happy saying I'm on the hunt for the Holy Grail or, or some kind of proxy. I do think that that chalices did survive from the uh, you know very earliest celebrations of the mass in the first, second, third centuries AD. And I do think they have fingerprints and clues that will give us a better understanding of what was really happening in Paleo-Christianity.
2: So you're continuing your research.
3: Um, yes, and probably for a good many years to come.
2: What other religions, uh, by the way, we have about uh, a minute and a half left, I think. Um, what other religions have this kind of psychedelic backstory? Buddhism, Hinduism? Hinduism makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, uh, Islam?
3: It does. Hinduism makes makes a lot of sense. It, it's not uncontroversial. I've gotten in trouble for talking about it, but there is this uh, there's this notion of the soma. So soma is this, again, ancient beverage that is, that is praised in the Vedas, some of the earliest literature uh, that survives from the subcontinent, uh, written in Sanskrit, which incidentally uh, was part of my studies as an undergrad. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation on to what that soma was and some really interesting papers that have been written comparing the soma to this Greek potion we've been talking about the entire hour, um, to different potions that would pop up in, um, in Persia um, through, uh, through the Avestan language and things like that. Um, so as, as far as we can tell, there, there's something fairly universal about experimentation with these, with these potions and mind-altering states.
2: But there's not specific, I mean Aldous Huxley borrowed that word. Do you see evidence of this in Buddhism or in Islam?
3: well i won't get into islam but there's some interesting threads to follow throughout the east that i do think made their way into the greek and roman and christian west yeah
2: absolutely fascinating stuff you want to do a deep dive get the book the immortality key the secret history of the religion with no name by brian c Mororescu. brian thanks a lot great talking with you today you too tom thank you thanks for writing a brilliant book And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all, another Greek word there, demos. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.